News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Read a fascinating piece in New York Magazine yesterday, and it has to do with the vaccine that we are all talking about, the one that's going to start going out and getting rolled out to British Columbians next week. This was the COVID-19 vaccine created by Pfizer. Well, it turns out it was actually created on January the 13th. That is way before I think a lot of people were even thinking that COVID-19 was a problem, before we reached critical mass with the pandemic, and before we reached this stage. So what was happening during all those months with the vaccine? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is David Wallace-Wells, who's a deputy editor at New York Magazine. David, thank you for joining us. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Well, this piece was so fascinating. Tell me, January 13th was way before we were thinking about COVID-19. How long did it take to design this vaccine? No, it's amazing. It's really an amazing story. And in a year in which we've had, you know, just, it's just been horrible, horrible suffering and so many setbacks, both at the policy level and the disease level. It's, it's amazing to know that science can achieve something like this. It took the folks working at Moderna um, two days. They did it over a weekend. Um, the, the genetic sequence of the disease was published um, sort of, um, you know, without approval by a Chinese scientist on January 10th. And by January 13th, they had completely finished um, designing the drug, which was then, you know, fully manufactured and shipped off to be tested in clinical trial um, by late the next month, by late February. So, you know, chances are the disease was circulating to some limited degree um, in the U.S. and Canada um, in late January, early February, but it was so, so limited that we weren't even catching it in, in testing, which means that this, in, this um, vaccine was entirely designed before there was even a single confirmed COVID case in the U.S. And it was, in fact, manufactured and shipped before there was a single death. Um, and then, you know, that's that's on the one hand, incredibly exhilarating, amazing tribute to um, the power yeah. of science. On the other hand, it's it's a bit distressing when you think that for the entire duration of the pandemic, um, we had that we had the vaccine that is ultimately going to take us out of it. And we were just not sure whether we could trust it enough to use. Right. Because tell us about the process then that that vaccine has been undergoing or any vaccine has to undergo before being made available. Well, you know, different countries have different standards of testing. Um, in the U.S. here, um, we've been, you know, we have a we have a three phase um, clinical trial um, set up where at first there is, um, but even before the first phase, there's there's testing done on um, non human primates, so animals, um, and then there's a very small um, human clinical trial um, that's really designed to make sure that there's no really horrifying adverse reactions um, in a small population of subjects. Then there's a larger phase two trial, which is also just for safety. Um, and then a much, much larger phase three trial in which we're finally testing for efficacy. And, you know, for most vaccines, this process, just going through the clinic phase, these three phases of clinical trials takes years. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that it took us under a year um, in this case is unprecedented. And it, it it's, we did it among other things by um, sort of, running all of these clinical trials at once and um, to some degree, depending on how you want to look at it, skipping the preclinical phase. So we're already sort of running this process um, much, much faster than it's ever been run before. But a number of scientists I spoke to um, for the article that I wrote suggested that, in fact, um, if we were properly prepared for the pandemic and indeed facing future pandemics, 
we could possibly get through a lot of this testing much, much more quickly. Indeed, do most of it um, before the pandemic had even arrived. Really? How? Well, you know, what they said is that we basically have a quite good idea of all of the virus families that are likely to give rise to um, a pandemic like this one. Um, There are, you know, a small handful of virus families totaling maybe 50 or 100 viruses out in the world. Scientists study these viruses. They know them quite well. And so even before they produce pandemics, um, they understand their genetic sequence. They understand their vulnerabilities. And we could theoretically develop um, vaccines for them before they really become um, an out, a disease outbreak, when they're, when they're simply viruses that we know are out in the wild but aren't yet infecting humans um, at any large scale. Um, if we were able to do that, we could at the very least test those vaccines for, um, for safety and go through the phase one and phase two trials um, before the disease even appeared in the world. And some scientists suggested we could effectively do a form of phase three efficacy testing before the virus was widespread. Also, um, by simply doing it in a laboratory setting, it wouldn't be quite the same as testing it in human subjects mm-hmm. when the disease is out in the world, but it would give us a quite good idea of, of efficacy. And if we did all those things, um, we could essentially have vaccines at the ready for every possible viral pandemic um, that the world could produce. Now, of course, some new strains could emerge um, as this one was a new strain, but they would be close enough to existing strains that we had done all this work on that all it would take would be a kind of um, a small tweak, a little um, customization of an existing vaccine um, for us to be relatively confident that we we could have that under control too. And in that case, we might want to do some additional um, testing, but some of the scientists I spoke to said, you know, we could get through that in in a period of ten or twelve weeks, just a few months. Um, so still much much mm-hmm. faster than we've managed this time around. Which again, not I don't want to sound too much like a, a like a downbeat commentator saying that we we should have done this faster. Again, this is the fastest we've ever managed to produce a vaccine like this in all of human history. Um, But, you know, looking at it now, um, scientists are saying we we might be able to build out um, our capacity to do it much faster in the future. Right. But I don't know, David, it almost sounds like you're asking us to learn a lesson from this because we know with we know with human nature, that's not always the case. Right. We tend to do the well, it's over now. We can forget all about it. I think the the the, um, the reason that that might not happen this time, and we'll see, but the reason that might not happen is that the cost of doing this research and building out these vaccines is actually quite small compared to the incredible cost of um, of the pandemic, the way that it's completely shuttered our economies, um, devastated communities, devastated individuals. Um, but even just at a at a sort of a, a monetary level, um, one of the scientists I spoke to, Florian Kramer, who's a vaccine scientist at Mount Sinai here in New York and just published a paper in Cell outlining his proposal to accelerate vaccine development, said that we could do this for the entire family of known, um, vaccine, of known viruses um, for a total cost of a, at maximum about $3 billion, which is you know, just a fraction of the amount of money that we've spent um, supporting ourselves through the pandemic and indeed on public health measures throughout the pandemic. Um, now, $3 billion is a lot. But yeah. compared to the trillions that we're spending now, it's a tiny, tiny fraction. And in the, in the context of, say, a Canadian national budget or an American national budget, it's a small enough fraction that you could basically hide it in the right. back of, of some existing appropriations and, and still manage. So we'll see if the, if the political will is there, if the scientific um, focus remains on um, these threats in the future. But it seems to me a small enough ask that we could conceivably do it going forward. Well, we will see. But listen, you've written a fascinating piece. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about it. My pleasure. Thanks again.
Appreciate your time. This is David Wallace Wells. He's the deputy editor at New York Magazine. Uh, check out the piece, nymag.com is where you will find it. But essentially, it talks about how we had the COVID-19 vaccine the whole time. Uh, as David told us, it was written. The formula for it was written, done, produced back in January and February. And it's just been tested this whole time just to make sure it is totally safe. Something that I know will be discussed uh, quite a bit now as we roll out the vaccine plan and more and more people are going to start to get vaccinated. This is Mornings with Simi. Pretty exciting news, actually. Ocean researchers believe they've discovered a new species of whale off the coast of Mexico. Let's find out more about this exciting discovery. So joining us now is Dr. Jay Barlow, who's a biological oceanography researcher. Dr. Barlow, thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Good morning. Tell me about this discovery. Well, we were on an expedition um, that was sponsored by Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, uh, myself and a Mexican researcher and a couple of other U.S. researchers. And we were down there um, trying to find this rare beaked whale called Perrin's beaked whale. Um, beaked whales are um, sort of a mid-sized whale. They weigh about a ton. Um, they kind of look like a large dolphin. And okay. anyway, um, one morning, early in the morning, we had uh, this encounter with friendly beaked whales. Um, they just came right up to the boat. Um, when we looked at the photographs afterwards, we realized it wasn't the one we were looking for. It was something entirely different. It, it had a different look. And then we put acoustic recorders in the water, and we found out that also they sounded different. So um, we think we got something new here. And so nothing like this had been seen before. You must have been so excited in that moment. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was very, very excited. Um, you know, it took a little, little bit of time on the on the vessel for all of us to work to work through it together and gather all the evidence to convince ourselves. Because scientists tend to be uh, skeptical um, of their own work if they're if they're good about it. But um, it came, we came to that conclusion that you know, based on both what it looked like, um, and it did look a bit like um, an existing whale that had been described that is only found in the tropics. So what um, but it didn't sound it didn't sound like that whale. Oh, interesting. So then you can actually identify that from the sound. Like that's you can categorize yeah. all the different sounds of whales. Yeah, so this this group of uh, whales, the the beaked whales, every species seems to have a unique echolocation pulse. And if you look in in great detail at these pulses, you can tell the species apart. Okay, so where do you go from here then? If you found, you found one, now do you have to look for more? <laughs> yes, we do. Um, so the immediate plan will be to put a note together so that scientists can be aware of this and be looking for it. So hopefully we'll enlist uh, the help of other scientists. Um, but I would like to have a, a, a second expedition back to the area where we saw this, this whale and um, maybe use our acoustic data to map where the density is highest and where it would be best to look for them. Um, but I certainly would like to go back and look for them again. You know, Dr. Barlow, it sounds quite remarkable that in this day and age, right, where we know so much that there's still something like a whale out there that we've never seen before. Yeah, so it would be, um, imagine uh, finding a land animal the size of a Clydesdale horse, or at least the weight of a horse, um, living on land that had never been seen before. Yeah. That would be just in impossible, but the, the seas hold a lot of mysteries. Well, that's the thing. So how does something like that happen? Do you think it just might have been so deep that you didn't see it? Is this an area that doesn't get much study? Um, it's an area that doesn't get much study, but beaked whales are just really, really hard to see and get good photographs of. Um, they spend 
only about two minutes at the surface, and then they, they're down for an hour. Um, they just are really, really hard to see. And some beaked whale species are only known from the strandings on the beach. And uh, that's the only reason why we know that they exist. And if they haven't stranded and hasn't, it hasn't been recognized um, by someone who would recognize that that's something different, then it just can get overlooked. It's like the giant squid. Yeah. Right? Is this the kind of stuff that keeps you fascinated by this job? Yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly uh, the, the frosting on the, on the cake. Um, it's, it's not the, the day-to-day work because you can't really predict when you might actually make a significant finding like this. That's, that's a once-in-a-lifetime once sort of event, but uh, it certainly is a, a nice surprise when it comes. No kidding. Okay, so it, does this new whale species have a name? No, and we won't be able to name it until we get some better evidence. Either, um, you know, if we can find a skull, um, that would be ideal, either in a museum collection or um, in the, on a beach in Mexico somewhere, or if we get a good DNA sequence. So um, we did collect water samples in the vicinity of the whale, and um, sometimes they contain enough DNA from sloughed skin hmm. to um, to get a, a DNA sample that would really verify that this is something that's 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 different. But you can't do it from a photograph. Um, that's that's just not how species are are described. All right. Well, sounds like there's more work to do then, Dr. Barlow. Thank you for your time. Thank you. That's Dr. Jay Barlow. He's a biological oceanography researcher on the team that discovered this new species of whale off the coast of Mexico. Again, still called a new species of whale because as you heard him say, they are not yet able to name it. They need to find, well, more examples of it, essentially, map it a little bit better before they can do that. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about what's going on with the mink farming industry right around the world. We know there have been all those cases and those problems that they had in countries like Denmark. And recently, of course, here at home, we've heard about a problem with a mink farm in the Fraser Valley, where not just some of the workers who have tested positive for COVID-19, but also among the mink themselves. So to talk about the impact of this on the industry, and really, I think for a lot of people, they're just kind of realizing the size of the mink farm industry as well. We're joined now by the former executive vice president of the Fur Council of Canada and founder of truthaboutfur.com. Alan Herskovici is with us. Alan, thank you for being here. Yes, hello. Good morning. How big is the mink farming industry in Canada? Well, it's nothing like Denmark, but it's uh, we have about 60 farms across the country, um, stretching right from uh, farms in Newfoundland right over, of course, to British Columbia. And uh, it's producing about, let's say, about a million pelts a year. And virtually all of that, most of that is for export. Um, and so it's, you know, it's supporting local economies, uh, farm economies, rural, rural regions. And, uh, you know, it's, we don't hear much about it usually, except when there's a problem. Uh, that they're working on now the farmers, but uh, it is an, a, you know part of our history and it's it's still there uh, right. for industry in Canada. And this is obviously a problem then. So what are farms doing to deal with this? Well, we first learned about this that there was a danger that mink could uh, contract COVID back in the spring. The first cases were were seen in Holland in back in April and on farms, and uh, it wasn't a complete surprise because we've known for a long time that mink are susceptible, for example, to human influenza, to the flu, you know, another respiratory virus. But it was in in the spring that 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 was seen in in Holland for the first time. And that gave a heads up to producers in Canada. The Canada mink breeders 
Association, you know, sent notices across to all the members across the country to uh, really step up uh, biosecurity uh, measures, which means, in other words, restricting the going, you know, coming going from the farm, not having people unnecessarily come into the farm from outside to prevent uh, any kind of spread. Um, you know, using protective PPE like we do with each other. Uh, you know, wearing masks and gloves uh, when handling the mink. Any worker that arrives or uh, who doesn't feel well doesn't go near the mink until they're tested. And um, all these measures have, you know, clearly been applied very well by the farmers and, and have been working because we're probably one of the last producing countries in the world to even see a single case, which is what we've just seen in British Columbia. So, you know, we see the farmers have been, mink producers have been very serious about uh, right. but about putting these measures in place. What happened then? So would you say, did somebody get lax? Did the measures not work? Like, what, what went wrong? Well, it, it, it's, it was pretty inevitable that you're going to get one slip up here and there. But it's, you know, the, the story in Denmark has, has sort of warped our, our perception of this. Um, it's, it's not necessarily nearly as serious as, as we've had the impression from what happened in Denmark. They've been having cases on mink farms in the United States um, since the summer. Um, COVID has been found in, in some a few farms there, um, four different states since the summer. Um, the CDC uh, does not consider this to be a, a risk to the public in any way um, and, and can be contained and controlled. The CDC is not recommending any sorts of calls like we saw in, in Denmark. Um, Dr. Fauci, whose name we know very well now, you know, has also said that he does not consider you know, COVID and mink to be necessarily a, a, a it's very low risk, uh, you know, in, in general. And what they've seen in the United States, um, and I just spoke uh, this week to one of the, the top veterinarians who's dealing with it on mm-hmm. mink farms. What we see is that when COVID gets onto a farm, like has happened now in British Columbia, generally it will spread very quickly to the mink. As we you know, with people, it's very contagious. Uh, most mink, though, um, will show no symptoms. Um, again, the mink are young. And as we see with people, the young don't seem to be affected much. So it doesn't seem to be very serious. Some of the older mink, you know, will get sick and will die. Right. Um, and, and so that's why you just don't want it to happen. Um, but within two weeks, they've seen in the States, within two weeks, generally, it's run its course. And all the mink will show antibodies for immunity. But um, Alan... Doesn't this also put the industry once again in, in a bit of a PR problem situation, right? Where all of a sudden it's in the news. And now people are once again talking about why are, with the mink industry. Well, you know, this I think is so un- unfortunate. C- certain animal rights groups that that have opposed, you know, fur and the fur industry, and in fact any use of animals, you know, for years and years, they've jumped on this to fan fears, and and, and this I think is disgraceful. I mean, this is not a time to be playing those sorts of games. I mean, this is a time to be supporting our, our farmers, I'd say. These are small, family-run farms. This is a time to be supporting our farmers when they're dealing with a difficult situation uh, and not attacking them. But uh, the fact is that the farmers are have been handling it seriously. You see, in British Columbia, for example, you know, um, all the mink farms, there's about 14 in British Columbia, they're licensed by the Department of Agriculture. They are inspected by the mm-hmm. Department of Agriculture. In fact, all the farms in BC were were inspected as recently as in the in the fall. The farm in question was visited by the chief veterinary officer. At the time, they found you know that you know all of the uh, the measures that should have been placed were in place. Right. Um, it, you know it, things can happen, but this is not an irresponsible industry. This is a well-run industry. Um, they follow codes of practice. And by the way, and the animals are are despite what certain activists want to ta- tell us. 
it, it makes no sense, you see, because farmers have to take excellent care of their animals. It's the only way you can produce the high-quality fur that Canada is known for. You know, any of us have a dog or cat, we know that it's a sign that an animal's not well. You see its fur doesn't look good. Now, here in this case, if only for that reason, they have to provide excellent care and nutrition to the animals. And Canada is not a major big producer in terms of numbers in the world scale right. in mink. But we, we are known for some of the highest quality mink in the world, and you only do that. Okay. You can only achieve that with great care. So, you know, I do think it's very unfortunate that certain animal rights groups in British Columbia, in Vancouver, have been fanning fears and trying to use this for their own sort of purposes. Uh, look, no one no one has to wear fur, like no one has to wear leather or wool, uh, um, you know, but most of us do eat meat and most of us do wear leather and wool. And what's important is to know that the animals are, are well cared for and being done responsibly. And that's okay. certainly the case with farming in, in British Columbia. Alan, thank you for your time this morning. It's a pleasure. That's Alan Herskovici, former executive vice president of the Fur Council of Canada and founder of truthaboutfur.com, talking about the mink farm situation. It's one farm out in the Fraser Valley where a number of the workers have tested positive. Now some of the mink there have tested positive. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, are surprised when they hear the story to think realize that the industry is the size that it is and that these farms do exist out here. I remember, though, because over the years, I think some of them have been in the news, right? Remember that some of them have had mink. Uh, released by activists and so there have been stories about this in the last 10 or 15 years for sure just the pictures from Denmark and from some of the Scandinavian countries of the mass mink cull did not do this whole issue of wearing fur any favors at all because people were just horrified by those pictures and I think that has kind of worked up into this as well this is mornings with Simi Well, it was the news that we have all been waiting for, right? Health Canada approved the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine yesterday. And we don't want you to forget that there is a local company that played a big role in its development. Vancouver-based Acutus Therapeutics provided their lipid nanoparticle delivery system. I don't know what that is, but it's important, right? It's a key element in the development of this vaccine. So we thought, why not find out exactly what it is? So joining us now is the president and CEO of Acutus. It's Dr. Thomas Madden. Thank you so much for being here and congratulations. Oh, thank you, Simi. Can you explain to me what it is that Acutus did here? Uh, well, the uh, vaccine uh, developed by um, Pfizer and BioNTech uses a, a new technology where we're uh, providing uh, a message, messenger RNA, uh, to cells in our body uh, to allow them to make part of the COVID-19 virus, a protein on the surface of the virus. And then when our cells make this protein, our immune system uh, recognizes it and develops a protective immune response against it, which can uh, pr- uh, protect us against uh, a future infection by the virus itself. Now, the problem with messenger RNA is it's very quickly broken down after it's administered to the body. So it needs to be protected. And it also can't get into cells by itself. So it needs a delivery vehicle to carry it into our cells um, so that it can work. And Acuitas uh, provides the, the lipid nanoparticles which protect the messenger RNA and, and carry it into our cells. And so the fact that this was chosen to partner up, you know, how did that, how did the partnership come along? Well, we had already been working with uh, uh, BioNTech um, on other um, messenger RNA therapeutics. 
Um, and so when uh, we realized the seriousness of the um, COVID-19 pandemic um, or the potential seriousness, you know, back in uh, late January, early February this year, um, we uh, quickly uh, decided with them that we would uh, work together to create a, a vaccine based on the messenger RNA technology. So that technology then, Dr. Madden, can you see that being used in the future as well? Like, is this the basis for a new type of delivery system? Uh, I, I think the technology uh, is is the way of the future. It's an extremely um, precise and sophisticated way to develop uh, new vaccines because your immune response is only against a single component uh, in the virus. And um, I think we've seen with both the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, which both use uh, the same messenger RNA technology, these are the first two um, to, uh, to, to hopefully get a- approval. We're still waiting for approval for the Moderna vaccine, but we're expecting that shortly. So I think we've demonstrated that this uh, new approach uh, allows us to develop vaccines uh, more quickly than the conventional approach. Right. And so I think that's something that is worth really explaining to people, Dr. Madden, isn't it? Because there are people out there who are saying, well, I don't know, like this vaccine was approved so quickly, but it really is about this new approach. It is. And and, um, I mean, the, the, the clinical studies that have been conducted to, to demonstrate the safety and the effectiveness of the vaccine are uh, just as comprehensive as, as for, for other vaccines. I think what you've seen is that much of the development work, though, rather than being done in series, you know, one thing after another, has been done in parallel. And so we've been able to greatly compress uh, the, the time needed um, to, uh, to make the vaccine available. Right. And that's really the message that has to get out there so that people understand that, right? That this is safe and this is just new technology. This is it. And as I say, in some ways, it's a simpler, uh, more um, sophisticated and precise way of developing a vaccine uh, than the older technology. And that older technology that we had been dealing with, I mean, how old was that technology? Well, I mean, vaccination has been around for um, well over 100 years. And so um, the, the idea of, of, of taking a virus, usually a killed virus or, or, or in a form that doesn't cause infection, and then putting it into our body so that our body develops an immune response against it has been around for a long time. And, and vaccination has been probably the most important uh, medical advance uh, uh, in history. Uh, we've been able to control um, many, many uh, deadly uh, viral diseases um, through successful vaccination. Is this, do you think, uh, the kind of the beginning of a new era in this form of science and development? I, I think it is. I think, you know, uh, one of the things uh, that, um, uh, you know, it, it's worth mentioning is that you can develop a messenger RNA um, uh, vaccine based on the genomic sequence of, an, of a new virus. So as soon as we know the, the genomic sequence of a virus, then we can immediately create a messenger RNA uh, that will allow us to express one of its um, proteins, one of its components. Um, and so I think uh, it's it's an ideal technology to allow us to respond to future viral threats. I love it. Well, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. 
Uh, you're welcome. Thank you, Simi. We appreciate that. That's Dr. Thomas Madden. He is the president and CEO of a local company called Acuitus. And their lipid nanoparticle delivery system that they created is a key element in the development of these new vaccines, in particular, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine that was approved by Health Canada yesterday. And you can, I think it's important to know that this is like a new development, new research, new technology, which allowed them to kind of really find out more about this vaccine and its efficacy and its safety much faster than the older kind of traditional method of how vaccines were tested and delivered to the public. I know because I say that because I know there's already people out there going, well, I don't know. No, like it's it would they did it so quickly well they did it so quickly for a reason one like it seemed like every scientist in the world was working on this that helps uh, but also that they have developed this new technology to be able to make that happen doesn't mean it's not any less safe than it would have been if they had spent years developing this uh, in fact all eyes are on this thing right so it's actually the opposite of that this is mornings with simi We all are looking for something that we can do, right, to celebrate the Christmas or holiday season. Uh, Christmas lights is a great way to do that, but some of the typical places that we would go to, whether it's Stanley Park or Van Dusen, well, they're canceled this year. But there is still something you can safely do, uh, but you better act quickly. For more on that, we're joined now by Laura Balance, who does media relations with the PNE. Good morning, Laura. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I, I, we have to talk about this because I think it's an amazing <laughs> thing, but it sounds like getting a ticket for this is going to be very challenging for the Winter Lights event. Yeah, so the PE has, since May, has done six drive-through events. On Saturday, we'll launch our seventh, which is Winter Lights uh, Journey to Santa. And it is an entirely drive-through experience. So we're we're very excited. We really feel like... Um, During this time, um, we have pioneered not only here in British Columbia, but in all Mm -hmm. of Canada, a way of um, being able to get out and come together safely apart, if that makes sense. Right. Now, was this something that PNE had planned to do like for a few months now, this drive through event? Or is this something you thought, oh, with these new restrictions, we should do this? No, we've been planning this since, um, you know, it really started in May with our mini donut drive. And I know that... Loved it. Yeah, like it was just, it was very humbling. It was very moving for our team. And really that event uh, was about trying to support some of our staff who were on layoff and to be able to call back a few people and support our concessionaire families who at that point were looking at uh, zero revenue for 2020. And, and a lot of them were in a very dire situation. So we, we put that together and it was kind of like the house party, right? When yeah. You, you, you you invite all your friends and then wait at seven o'clock to see if anybody shows up. And really, that was the <laughs> feeling we had. Will people come? And then they came and they came and they just supported us. People decorated their vehicles. Um, they, you know, are a lot of us stood out uh, to thank the people for arriving. And, and they ended up thanking us for, for being a little bit of a beacon of hope at the time, because there was really nothing else happening. We were in um, a very tight lockdown. We, with that success, moved into the Father's Day event, and then so on and so on. And yeah. so I think it was really during the fair where we saw such an outpouring of uh, love from people from across the region that, that we really thought, you know, we we might be able to pull something off for winter. And so this is an inaugural event, given the success. And 
I think the re- response, which is from a lot of people who are mobility challenged, a lot of seniors, a lot of young families, uh, where at this time they may not be able to do a walking yeah. event. It's been so positive. This, So I could see us continuing with this, although there is no plans beyond. I mean, really, for right. our organization, um, we've been the only entity of our kind not to receive any of the government uh, relief programs and not to qualify for them in the entire country. So it's been a struggle and a fight, and I think really a testament to, to this feisty attitude that the PE has developed over 110 years and a lot of adversity. Right. Okay. Well, I know it's very popular as well, though. Are, are you surprised by how popular it is? Because I know this Winter Lights one is almost sold out, right? Yeah, so we opened up some more dates last night, um, and so we're hoping to be able to accommodate as many people as possible. I think it's a combination of people looking for safe things to do, feeling very confident in the protocols that really have been pioneered at the p and It's interesting, we've had um, organizations from across North America reaching out to us asking how we're doing it. We've actually been supplying our plans uh, to other organizations across the country and, and into the United States in order to show them a really? way forward. Yeah, it's it, we've been um, given a number of awards. Um, people are really looking to us as national leaders in this space. And so we're really taking that to heart. You know, the PE, uh, we've been the place where British Columbia has come together following the Great Depression, two world wars. We will um, be the place, uh, once again, we're, we're very confident in that. Uh, when, when it's safe to do so, we believe that we will be the place where British Columbia can come together again. And, you know, I've right. said this before, I'm sure to you, Simi, we've been down, but we've never been out. And we, we're not going to let COVID, uh, you know, take us out this well, time. I'm so glad to hear people believe that too, right? Because they're clearly giving you a show of support. So I hope that people can get in there to see this. It looks amazing. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. The first rounds of vaccines will begin coming next week. It's a very limited supply, but a good opportunity to have a dry run here in British Columbia as we await uh, the, the development and approval of further vaccines into the new year. Okay, so that was Premier John Horgan yesterday on the first round of vaccines coming to BC next week. So 4,000 doses. We know what the vaccine rollout is kind of going to look like at this point. The first up for getting these doses are frontline healthcare workers who are connected to long-term care facilities and those working in intensive care, emergency departments, and hospitals where COVID-19 patients are being treated. Okay, so that's where those first 4,000 doses are, are going to go. Next up are residents of long-term care homes and then seniors over the age of 80. They will be next in line. Then you've got people who are high risk in high risk living conditions, they said. That includes people who live in shelters, uh, people who are homeless, and people in remote and isolated Indigenous communities. They are then the next ones in line. So the goal is to have those groups all vaccinated in the first three months of next year. So by the end of March 2021. And then starting in April, we are going to start vaccinating other frontline workers. That would be paramedics, uh, firefighters, police officers, grocery store workers, transportation workers, teachers. They will all be eligible in that round that would start 
in April of 1991. And then the rest of us, well, increments, right? It's going to be your risk level, but you essentially, you know, they'll start with people age 75 and up, and then they're going to move downwards in five-year age groups. Now, that's all well and good. Looks fine on paper, but I know it also brings up questions for people too, because there's always like certain situations that you feel don't quite fall into the categories that they have been described. Uh, For instance, I had an email from Donna earlier, which we're going to try to get this question answered for her. Uh, Her 84-year-old husband has had a stroke. Um, She is his caregiver at home. He can get the vaccine, but she's just wondering when she is eligible then for the vaccine as his caregiver. So I thought that was, that's a pretty good question there. We'll try to figure that out. Uh, We've also, I've got a question here from Mike that says, as a frontline healthcare worker in the community, expecting to be one of the first to get vaccinated in the next month, they wanted, he wants to know what the expectation is uh, for those who take the new vaccine for wearing masks. And I thought that's a very good question, right? Like if you get vaccinated, do you then think, well, I don't have to wear a mask? I don't think that's the case, Mike. I think we probably have to keep up no matter what, you know, wearing those until we know that we are at a safe level, that enough people have gotten this vaccination that we feel like it is okay to take those masks off. And you wait, of course, for that from health authorities uh, to tell us how that is going to go. But I would imagine it's going to take a while until we feel, I think Dr. Bonnie Henry addressed this yesterday, that uh, at some point probably... Uh, in probably September, you know, like towards the end of 2021 or towards the latter part of 2021 is when they feel like they will have enough herd immunity, enough people will have been vaccinated at that point that they can feel like they can relax a bit on the mask wearing. But until then, I would say that there's still going to be quite a bit of that rule following going on there. So these are all very good questions that I know that people will, um, you know, have We are going to be speaking with Adrian Dix, the health minister, to try to figure out where we can get the answers to this. And he joins us now for more on that. Thank you for being here. Hey, good morning, Simi. Quick question for you. I got a couple emails from people here. Now, Donna is uh, a caregiver to her 84-year-old husband who's had a stroke. He's in the first group, obviously, of people to probably get vaccinated, but she's just wondering where where does she fit into that as a caregiver of somebody who, you know, obviously is high risk? Well, initially... Um, what will happen is uh, we're working, looking at long-term care in terms of the vaccine. And sorry, I didn't hear your intro, so I didn't, uh, I didn't quite get the, the context, so I apologize. Um, so in the first step, in the first uh, 4,000 we're doing next week and some of the others, we're obviously focused on workers first in long-term care because uh, practically they can go to the immunization sites, and that's what we can do with Pfizer right now. We have to keep to one site. And also it allows us to ring fence uh, long-term care, which is important. Obviously, you know of uh, the 57 outbreaks we have in long-term care. So it's important to do that, important to provide protection in those circumstances. And uh, as we go through long-term care, and I'm not sure the circumstances of the person involved, but in long-term care, obviously, a next step will be to immunize the people who live in long-term care to give them uh, additional protections. And that will happen uh, perhaps when the Moderna vaccine comes or perhaps when we're allowed to break up the Pfizer vaccine. And uh, we'll also be involved in that effort to keep long-term care safer, what are called defined uh, essential visitors. They'll they'll also be uh, high on the list to uh, get immunized people who actually go into the facilities now. So that's the effort uh, initially uh, because obviously we get 
um, well, uh, thousands of doses or lots of doses. Uh, we have millions of people in BC. And then we'll go through the list of essential people. So all of those things are, are priorities, right. in particular the uh, steps to, to, to keep safe the people who are most vulnerable. What will happen after that um, is people in community, right? So uh, our elders in community in particular, uh, those over, uh, over 80 years of age, and uh, in the first instance, and then we'll go down age levels. One of the reasons we do that is that it's the simplest way uh, to address that. And, of course, uh, other workers, other mm-hmm. essential workers as we go forward. So that's kind of the, the basics uh, right. right now. But uh, the idea, the whole purpose of this is to keep people safe, and those will be the priorities. And, uh, and we'll work through that. How will you decide kind of which long-term care home goes first, right? Like, so the lineup itself, will you go to the ones that have had the bigger problems and say, okay, you guys go first? Uh, I think two things. There will be, um, so basically everyone in long-term care is at the same level. All the workers in long-term care would be at the same level. There are long-term care homes, which we would view as more vulnerable. For example, those with multi-bedrooms and others that might be ahead. But basically, as we see the numbers, we're going to be able to address workers in long-term care over the first few weeks, so it won't make too much difference right. to those groups of people. And there will be a system set up, kind of uh, our teams have put an ethically-based system to put them. There's not really a ranking, but which are the most practical to do and which we think are the most at risk right now. But what we're going to do is very quickly move through all of them. Okay, so what about the mask uh, mandate issue? I had a question about that from someone as well. So even as the vaccinations start, if you've been vaccinated, I would assume but you correct me if I'm wrong, you still have to wear a mask. You bet, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it requires two injections to be fully effective, right? And two, uh, that's part of the safety of the community, right? And so uh, these, this will absolutely continue to be the case. And remember, right now, and this may change, we may get more than this, but right now, by March 31st, 8 to 10% of people will be, in, will be vaccinated, 8 to 10%, right? That's not a herd immunity in the herd I know or yeah. any community I know, right? So we're a long way from um, getting away from uh, the community actions. What we're trying to do first is protect those most vulnerable and then move out from there. And so hopefully by this time next year, everyone who wants to, be, to uh, get the vaccine will get the vaccine. And there'll be more vaccines coming as well uh, in probably in the second quarter of this year. So basically... Uh, we have to continue with these measures. And this is going to be hard, Sammy, because yeah. obviously the news of the vaccine is exciting news. But for the first and short period, it's not going to change anything in terms of the steps we have to take in the community, particularly those steps in the most recent provincial health orders, which are, of course, uh, important and are going to have a major impact on, uh, on this season of the year. So how um, also will we go about the, with the 4,000 doses? BC is administering that to 4,000 different people, which is not the tactic that every province is taking. So why did cause COVID, this vaccine requires two doses. So why is BC doing it this way? Well, I think, uh, I believe it's a tactic that most, uh, that most provinces are, are using. I, I hadn't, uh, hadn't heard that, uh, Simi, because what's going to happen is the following week, we're going to get more doses and then we're going to get uh, incrementally more doses as we go along. So the second dose is not going to be a problem. And in any event, we wouldn't hold back the second dose, you know, to keep it that second dose protected. And so say do 2000 and wait 21 or 28 right. days 
and do the second dose. We want to get as many people into the protection as we can right away. But we're expecting 4,000 the first week, maybe a similar number, and then higher numbers as we go forward as the manufacturing of this vaccine is kicked in. It was approved in Canada yesterday, and this is what's being provided. So we're going to use those 4,000 doses, you bet, on 4,000 different people. There will be doses uh, that will be adequate for their second dose later on and keep people going through the process. That's the most efficient way, holding vaccine back. I don't think would make a lot of sense. I don't make sense to anyone. I don't know what other provinces are doing about that, but that's what we're doing. Okay. And so then I assume there'll be like a big campaign to educate people on all of this and they're like, where can people go if they have questions? Yeah. First of all, then go to the Ministry of Health website, the BCCDC website. There's information about uh, the immunization plan. Uh, obviously, the Health Canada website as well. Health Canada approved these vaccines and they did extremely well. Should we say in the in the clinical trials? Uh, in the case of Pfizer, I should say forty thousand people involved in a clinical trial, and the results were excellent. Moderna's information isn't out yet because Health Canada is still reviewing that, and we're hopeful that at some time in the near future it will be approved. So there'll be information about that, and there will be a campaign. But as Dr. Henry said yesterday, obviously. All of the results of this have been very positive, and uh, we've been waiting for this, obviously, for, for a long time. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, take care, Sumi, anytime. You too. That's Adrian Dix, Provincial Health Minister, talking about the vaccine rollout plan. I know we'll be talking a lot more about this, so if you want to email me, simi at cknw.com.